When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. There'll be people out there saying, hang on, it's only been a few days since the last one. What is this, the one show? Well, no, it's not, but... uh, what I thought it would do, because what I'm hoping to do in the next edition after this is, uh, with some of the guys, look at World Championship predictions, which means we won't have as much time for, e- for listener emails. A lot have come in, so I thought I'd take the opportunity to go through the ones we've had. I like to acknowledge all the listeners who write in and try and answer queries and just discuss things that people want to discuss. So we're going to do that uh, a little bit later in this uh, uh, sort of midweek sports special, for those of you who remember this. I'm sort of Nick Owen. Uh, that's another contemporary reference. But in the meantime, I'm in the hole for the Tour Championship. Uh, having a good time, uh, and it's been, been interesting stuff so far. There's been a lot of comment about the low attendances, the low ticket sales, and it does look bad on television, of course. You tune in. What you want is people to tune in and think they're watching something that should, you know, take their interest, and I think the matches, you know, have, have been good so far and interesting, but the, the lack of atmosphere is a concern. There's been a lot of comment on it. I would say probably too much, actually. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's actually one very simple solution. If you think there aren't enough people in the audience, buy a ticket. <laughs> now, of course, people will say, well, hang on, I'm at work, I don't live nearby, I can't afford it. And all that's true of a lot of other people as well. But there are contributory factors, and uh, there's two main ones, but uh, there are sort of peripheral ones as well. The first is, it is a new venue for the World Snooker Tour. They've had senior snooker here, but going to a new venue with a, a tournament is difficult because you're trying to establish a base right from the off. Um, and, you know, it's a great venue. I mean, the bonus are in a terrific venue, but you can't sort of hide the, the empty seats, I'm afraid. Um, the area, of course, is here is well served. It's not f- too far to Sheffield and York, who have, you know, two of the biggest tournaments. Well, they have the biggest tournament in the sport, and they also have a, another really big one. So it's not like there isn't snooker people can get to, and maybe, you know, they'll spend their money on those events rather than, than this one. I get the feeling it's not a particularly prosperous area. I know I was talking to someone who lives here and they were saying that, you know, shops have closed down and, you know, people don't necessarily have a lot of money. We're, we're in the midst of a cost of living crisis and, you know, people, snooker players at the top end of the game are earning a lot of money, but that's not true of everyone in the country. You know, belts have been squeezed, energy prices have gone up. People don't have actually a lot of money to spend. 
And, of course, there is the issue as well that some of the star names of the sport are not in the tournament. We haven't got Ronnie O'Sullivan or Judd Trump or Neil Robertson or John Higgins or Mark Williams. And these people do bring uh, spectators in. So that has made, I think, a difference. How marginal that is, we don't know because we, we wouldn't know unless they were playing in it. But the fact is, ticket sales have been bad. I'm told they'll be okay. Well, they'll be good on Saturday and it's virtually sold out on Sunday. Well, that's good. I mean, people, you can understand prioritising the weekend. But uh, for the rest of the week, it's not looking good. There's two problems, and it's very simple. And I'm speaking to someone who's at the tournament. I'm on the ground. I'm not uh, looking at it from afar. I'm here in Hull. These are the two issues that I've identified. The first is, it's about a 10-minute walk from the hotel to the venue, where we're staying to the venue, through the city centre. I haven't seen one piece of physical marketing anywhere. You know, the train station, there's nothing there. There's a shopping centre. To be fair, there is an LED screen in the shopping centre which show rolling adverts. The snooker was on that, but it's very brief. It's about 10 seconds. And also, you know, you have to kind of be focusing on that. I don't know, you know, to what extent. I mean, it's not a, it's not a permanent advert. It's not like a poster that's hanging there. So, you know, you, you sort of you have to be sort of focusing on it to see it. Um, but, you know, we go past shops, we go past businesses, and there's no sign at all that the tournament's on. And even at the venue, you know, when, when the seniors was on, they had the world seniors there, Jason Francis, the promoter, did a good job of promoting that. And outside the venue, he had, like, big blocks of chalk and snooker balls. And if you were just walking past the venue, you, oh, you think, oh, there's snooker here, and, you know, maybe let's see what that is. And they, the crowds, they were good for that. But there's nothing anywhere to say that the snooker's on. And that's a massive problem because we're, we're at the town centre and, and I know I mean guys who were working on this event on the production side they went to a snooker club the other night and no one in there seemed to know the tournament was on they're, they're people who like snooker already so that's an issue for sure but the main issue is very simple actually the tickets are too expensive <laughs> that's it the tickets are too expensive they priced the tour championship this year the same as last year when it was in Clandidno but they're different areas Clandidno is full of an older audience a retired audience People have more money to spend there, and they did spend it on the snooker, and we saw that again at the Welsh Open. As I say, the economy here is not thriving to the same extent. It's a different demographic, and people can't afford it. £22 per session is a lot of money to people. And, as I say, people are going to come, they're probably going to come once to the final, or, or, or the, the semi-final on Saturday. So Saturday, Sunday, fine. The rest of the week, not fine. World Snooker's argument is that, well, we shouldn't sell the tickets for any less than that because it cheapens the event you know we're giving it away cheap this is a prestige event we shouldn't give tickets away too cheap but what also cheapens it is people tuning in and seeing 160 people sat in the audience and massive spaces and empty chairs it's not good enough and here's the thing right and this is not going to be a rant this is i've thought about this I'm not going to be angry i'm just going to say how i see it because i'm working at the event i'm doing my best to promote the event working on it for itv sport and trying to, you know, convey that this is a big tournament, which it is, and that people should watch it, which I think they should, and certainly snooker fans, I'm sure, are. But here's the problem, as I see it. The pre-marketing that was done hasn't worked, OK? Rather than focusing on that, what are the solutions? Now we're here, what is being done to try and get people in this week? And as far as I can see, the answer to that is very little. It's almost like, I mean, backstage, I can tell it's a blame game. Everyone, World Snooker Tour is a big organisation. There's different areas of it. Everyone seems to be blaming each other. But what, this was kind of the issue last week, as I was saying, people should pull together. What is actually being done to rectify this? When I had my play on at Edinburgh Fringe, I've had a few on, but specifically one I had seven years ago, I was there the whole time. So I saw this on the ground. What we did, of course, you're competing against a lot of other shows. 
You go around the local shops, the local businesses, with a poster of your show, and you ask them, can I put this in the window? And they're used to that at Edinburgh during the Fringe, and, and, you know, most of them say yes, some of them don't, but you go and ask them. Why isn't that happening here? Why aren't the posters... I haven't seen one poster for the tournament anywhere in Hull. Not one. Why haven't they gone to the train station? Why haven't they gone to the local shops? Put a poster up. <laughs> Tell people the tournament's on. Is it beneath World Snooker Tour to go around the local businesses and speak to people who actually live and work here and try and engage them in helping to promote the sport? The local snooker clubs don't seem to have done anything with them. Offer them discount tickets. They're people who are already playing snooker. They like snooker. Go along there. These are these are basic things. The local schools, the university, do ticket di- deals, discounted ticket deals. We need bodies sat in the auditorium. You can't force people, I know, but more can be done on the ground to try and get people to come along. Last week, Steve Dawson, the chairman of World Snooker Tour, was very quick to put his name to a statement criticising Ronnie O'Sullivan, the world champion, for comments he'd made in pretty you know emphatic terms. Now, people can argue and have argued that he was right to do that. I hope, and I don't know the truth of this one or the other, I hope he's been equally virulent with his own staff because they haven't done a good enough job. That's just a fact. You can see the empty seats prove that. And as I say, it's not about, okay, our pre-tournament plan didn't work, we've sold the tickets for too much. That's all true. But what is being done now the tournament's on to remedy it? Rather than just sitting there and saying, oh, well, we'll never come here again, there's a lot that could be done in the local area. You know, so. It, there's a lot of people around. We're right in the city centre. That from the railway station to the venue, it's about a five-minute walk. So that's how central it is. But what is being done to raise awareness of the tournament in whole city centre itself? As far as I can see, absolutely nothing. And that, I'm afraid, is the is the issue here. You know, you might get a, a couple more hundred people per session, maybe. Having said that, the tickets are still too expensive. So that's to me the issue. They should offer discounts. Get a couple of students to go down the shopping centre. Offer two for one deals offer cheap tickets just get people in to make it look like the event it should look like which is a prestige event you know it's an important tournament big first prize 150,000 but we've got to wait to the weekend to get people in so you know this is going to be looked at I said last week and I stand by it there are two circuits there's the three so-called triple crown events they get huge resources thrown at them and these other events do not get enough resources put towards them there's been mistakes made here. I hope they're learned from in the future because this should not be happening. It, you know, this event is not coming across as it should. And that's a shame for the players who I think have felt a bit flat. It's a shame for audiences. One thing I will say is, though, you know, all due respect to people who have actually paid their money to come. You know, it's been enjoyed by the people who've come along. I'm sure they would like to see more people in the auditorium as well. And I hope it picks up. But as I say, <laughs> for that to happen, something's got to be done. It's no good everyone blaming each other and saying we can't do any more. There's lots of things you can do that you're not doing, that you should be doing, and there's still time. You know, we've still got a couple of days before the weekend. Try and build the audience for the next couple of days. Uh, but this is not at the finest hour, um, I'm afraid, for World Snooker Tour. There are new people who've just come in. It's nothing to do with them. They've only just started. I'm sure they're looking at this and sort of taking notes and taking stock of what needs to change. And I'm sure it will change, because actually ticket sales overall... Are good. I mean, they've actually, they've actually gone up this season, I was told, across the board, but this event is sticking out like a sore thumb. Mistakes have been made. Let's learn from them. And let's also have a plan in place, if things haven't worked, to try and remedy them once the event starts, rather than just saying, oh, I'm sorry, we can't do anything about it. Anyway, as I said, we're going to, um, I'm going to go through the emails that have come in, uh, in the last week or so. We didn't get a chance to read them all out last time. So we start with Ross Williams. 
He says, uh, on the back of the spat between Ronnie O'Sullivan and Will Snugator, I felt the need to point something out. For the last two years, WST have continually trotted out the line of not being able to return to China due to COVID restrictions, lockdowns, etc. I'm currently watching the Chinese 8-ball World Masters tournament from China, which features a field of 96, including 48 international players, many from the UK. This tournament has a first prize of just under £600,000, far exceeding the winner's cheque for the upcoming World Championship in Sheffield. Surely this completely refutes WST's position that they can't return to China for COVID reasons and leads me to believe that the commercial opportunities available for World Snook in China are no longer what they were prior to COVID. I appreciate your thoughts on this. I love the podcast. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Ross. Well, thanks for raising this. I actually spoke to Mark Selby about this tournament, uh, the pool tournament you mentioned a little while ago. It's not quite um, as you might think. The reason the first prize is as big as it is, is because they haven't been able to hold that tournament for the last couple of years. So what they've actually done is rolled over the first prize. It was originally around a couple of hundred thousand, and it's rolled over, as you say, to around 600,000. So that's three years' worth of first prizes, a bit like a lottery rollover. So that's the reason the first prize... I mean, it's still big anyway, but it's actually much bigger because they put the three years together. Um, Snooker, we hope, will be back in China next season. There's going to be an announcement at the Crucible about next season's calendar... And it's widely expected that there will be tournaments in China. Exactly how many, exactly when, we don't know. But they are hopeful and I understand, you know, multi-year deals are being discussed. So we will find that out um, when the World Championship comes around. There'll be a press conference and it will be announced, uh, the tournaments for next season. And I understand there will be uh, tournaments in China. So, in fact, it's a question of just waiting a couple of weeks for that to, for that to come out. But um, thanks for raising that. And uh, we move on. Two, well, Luke Williams, and now Luke uh, has written a terrific uh, book about Patsy, I was going to say Patsy Fagan, but of course it's Patsy Houlihan, uh, called The Natural, and uh, that, that book is coming out, well, imminently, and uh, hopefully uh, at some point, probably after the World Championship, because there's another book I want to discuss um, by John Skilbeck about the 1982 World Championship, which is also coming out soon. And hopefully we'll, we'll get them both on at some point and have a little book club and discuss these books uh, after the Crucible. But anyway, Luke, uh, well, he was listening last week. And uh, thanks for the feedback, by the way. I had a lot of positive feedback for last week's podcast. We're number 13 in the Zimbabwe sports charts. Now, that's that's not nothing. It's not number 12, but it's number 13. And, fa- and hello to everyone in Zimbabwe. I don't know why it's popular there. But uh, anyway, we had a lot of listeners last week, and uh, including people. I've had people at the venue come up to me and... Uh, talk about what was said about the WST of Sullivan's bat. Anyway, what Luke says is, well, he calls it masterful, that's very kind of you, but he says, I've, I've taught the play in Inspector Calls 18 times in the last 18 years of being a teacher. And in your call for the Stuka community to move together and work together, I was reminded of the Inspector's final speech, which is one of my favourite monologues in all of drama. Well, that's very kind of you. Um, I have seen that play, but I, I don't actually recall what the speech was now. But anyway, uh, thank you for that. People always like to come up with new ideas, and uh, we've got uh, an email here from Phil, who uh, Phil Spivy says further to my previous email. Now his previous email, I, I can't remember whether I read this out or not, but anyway, it was uh, what was it about? No, it's, it's, again, you know, people say, well, you haven't prepared this very well, but uh, no, I didn't read it out actually. But anyway, I'll read this one out because you know, well, I started now. <laughs> Talking about uh, Mark Selby, he's a bit of a fan of Selby, I think, and uh, he said, I wouldn't be surprised to see him win the World Championship in a few weeks. Catching up with the earlier episodes of your podcast got me thinking about the snooker tour in general. Here are a few thoughts. Apologies in advance for what may, may be a lengthy email. 
tend to agree what you say about the so-called triple crown, as this was unheard of in the 80s and 90s, when all ranking events were prestigious. These three tournaments are definitely special, and the World Championship is out on its own, but it's time to also view the other tournaments, such as the excellent Players Series as massive events. I even seem to remember Steve Davis in the 80s admitting to not viewing the Masters as being important as other events. He was more interested in those that carried ranking points. That's exactly right, uh, Phil. I mean, there's literally there's quotes of him saying that. Anyway... Phil says, hopefully the tour will return to China. It made me wonder if there's scope for a tournament to be created that would become another really big event in terms of not just prize money, but also its format and length of matches. Perhaps it could be a tiered system where the top 16 qualify automatically and play 16 qualifiers. The final stages would last 14 days with two tables in play, make the first round best of 11, last 16 and quarterfinals best of 17, semis best of 17 or 19 with a two-day three-session final, maybe best of 29. Could it work? Obviously, as ever, it depends on money, along with broadcasters and all the other logistics to be considered. But I'm sure the Chinese audience would lap up a longer format tournament, and it would mean that a part of the world where interest is huge could host a genuinely major event. I'd have it early in the season to motivate players to be sharp after the summer, but any time would do. One last thing, the World Championship should be left exactly how and where it is. The Crucible is unique and perfect, creating an atmosphere that is special. Also, despite some suggesting the length of matches should be shortened, that's what makes it a tough event to win. It can't be fluked, and the three... Semi-final days are epic. You couldn't retain that with shorter matches, even over three sessions. I love the slow burn of those three days. Thanks for patiently making your way through all of this. Well, thank you, Phil. And on the Crucible, of course, we're going to have, as we always do every year, I'm sure, somebody saying it should be shortened, somebody saying it should go, go somewhere else, blah, blah, blah. I agree with you. It works. Leave it. As in terms of your Chinese idea, nothing wrong with it, but it, w- it would come down, as you say, to whether a broadcaster wants to show a 14-day tournament. It's a lot of big commitment. Um, of course, tennis grand slams are two weeks long, so you know there's precedent in other sports. Um, but uh, it's quite a, a long haul. But uh, yes, I mean, you know, I, I'm not against having uh, longer format tournaments. Um, but as I say, you know, firstly, I mean, the China Open. You say, you know, uh, a major event in China that was a big tournament before COVID. You know, that, that had the second biggest first prize after the World Championship, and it had a, a strange length of final, first to eleven, which has never really been a thing, but it's become one. Shanghai is the same. So first to eleven final. Um, so th- those matches were a bit longer, but uh, anyway, we'll uh, we'll see in due course. Hopefully, maybe that'll be one of the tournaments that comes back. We do hope so. I've had a lovely email here from Parser, who is coming from Singapore to the World Championship. So uh, Parser says, "I just wanted to say thank you for your amazing podcast. I've been a fan for years and really enjoy listening to all your insights, both on the podcast as well as your live commentaries. Oddly enough, I often listen to the podcast while working out." Anyways, I'm travelling from Singapore to the UK for the World Championship and I've bought tickets for all of the semi-final sessions. It's been a childhood dream of mine to watch Ronnie and John Higgins play each other at the Crucible, so I hope they make it to the semis. I also wish my fellow Iranian player Hossein Vafai to make it as he's shown some good form lately. Now on to my questions. I've bought a range of tickets from the VIP Century Club types all the way to the cheapest ones at the very last row for different sessions in order to get the experience to get to experience different vibes. I suppose the front rows are more focused on the play and it gets a bit more rowdy at the back in between frames. My question is, for someone like me who's attending a proper tournament for the first time, what are some of the key things to note or preparation tips you could think of in order to get the best experience out of it? Any recommendations on how long before the match I should come in? What are the chances of actually meeting some of the players around the arena? Is it normal to ask for signatures photos if I just run into them outside? I know I sound like a crazy fanboy, but I promise you, I don't intend to heckle anyone. Just very excited to be catching the action that I've been following on TV for 20 years now live. Any other tips that you can think of would be much appreciated. Well, thank you for that. And uh, 
it's great that you're coming over and I hope you enjoy the experience. I'm sure you will. And as you say, you've got various uh, sort of vantage points to enjoy it from. In terms of the, the getting autographs with the players, if you do see them out, out, and around, out and about, by all means approach them. Virtually all of them are approachable and they understand that, you know, you, you, fans are part of the sport. Outside of the venue, they're normally quite relaxed. So if you see them, you know, sort of on their way to the crucible, by all means stop them. There is a stage door where the players usually enter. That's where fans traditionally congregate, although there are other ways of getting the crucible. Some players, <laughs> I know, try and find other ways of getting in if they want to kind of be left alone. But I think you'll find that if you approach the players, they'll be, uh, they will be approachable. Less so in the, in the actual, once you're in the crucible itself, because the players will be backstage. You'll only see them when they're playing. So the best chance of getting autographs would be outside. Um, in terms of, I mean, your specific questions, how long to come into the arena before it all starts? I would be in there about 20 minutes before, because that's when you'll see Rob Walker come out and start warming the crowd up. And that's part of the experience. Um, you know, being there and just soaking it all up, really. Um, I wouldn't say probably you need to be in too much before that, so maybe about 20 minutes before. Um, what else have you asked here? Uh, well, that's basically what you've asked, isn't it? So I hope that's that's helpful. Any any fans who, who go to the Crucible, by all means, get in touch and pass on to Parser what, uh, what you think uh, they could do to uh, improve their experience. The Century Club's interesting, I think, because... This is the first one at the Crucible. Now, at the Masters, it's in the arena. But here, it's not, because there isn't room in the arena. It's, it's, it's upstairs in a back room that was used by the sponsors last year and has been for a few years. My issue with this is, and I've flagged this up already to World Snooker Tour, the danger is you're going to get empty seats. Century Club uh, ticket holders sit in the front rows. Well, that's the plan, for, I think, the first three rows. They need to be back in those seats after the interval. They can't be slugging back white wine and eating canapes and prawn sandwiches. If players started, there needs to be an imperative to get them in the seats because it's a hot ticket, the Crucible. It's only less than a 1,000 seats, as we know, per session. 980, I think. And if there's going to be rows of empty seats, that will be a, a major news story. I mean, we're talking from Hull, where there's, you know, empty seats has been an issue this week. We can't have that at the Crucible uh, because people are, are in a hospitality lounge. So that's something that they need to watch out for. In terms of... I mean, it's not really rowdy at the back. No, I don't think that's right. At the front... Um, you know, you get a great view. If you can sit somewhere sort of in the middle, you get to see both tables. Although, of course, you're going to the semi-final, so that doesn't apply. I hope you enjoy it, Pastor. I'm sure you will, um, because it's very enjoyable, obviously. It's the Crucible. And of course, the sensation on the podcast in recent times has been uh, uh, random meetings with snooker players and banal conversations you've had with them. And we had a few of these in. John Hill, he said, at last year's World Grand Prix in Coventry, after checking into the adjoining hotel, Neil Robertson held open a door for me and my partner and let us through as we were struggling with our cases. We both mumbled a hurried cheers, Neil, in a very British manner. It doesn't end there. At this season's Champion of Champions in Bolton, the very same Neil Robertson was in his car struggling to navigate the way out of the car park and let my partner cross the road in front of him. Two totally separate incidents both confirm what a thoroughly nice chap Neil is. Yes, well, he is, and that's, uh, you know... <laughs> Neil Robertson in, in normal life is, is, is a fascinating business, I think, and you, you've identified a couple of uh, occasions there where he's been... Quite helpful by the sounds of things. Uh, Tommy O'Pray, he says, I have a couple to share. The first Scottish Open, December 2016, I believe, I had the fortune of meeting and getting selfies with many players, including Peter Lyons and Oliver Lyons, Anthony Hamilton and Jimmy White. Anthony was hilarious and asked why I'd want my pictures taken with him, saying he was a nobody, which was said in a very jovial way. He was a really lovely guy that day. The second was during the interval that night. I met Marco Fu in the car park, where he said he couldn't remember where he'd parked. 
He too was gracious enough to shake my hand and allow me to take a selfie with him. I wished him luck and he went on to win the tournament that night. He made me realise not all snooker players are chauffeured around and have some of the same challenges that us ordinary folk do, like finding their car on a busy day. Well, of course, most aren't, aren't chauffeured around, actually. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, 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 what, you, what you've identified there, I think, uh, Tom, is it's not quite as glamorous. <laughs> Maybe on the World Snooker Tour as people might, uh, might believe. Now, one thing we like on the podcast is to hear from people who've been to tournaments and uh, get their feedback. And Dave Mitchell went to the WST Classic. So he says, it's the first time he made on the show. I've been a massive snooker fan since I was a teenager and have followed and played snooker whenever I can. I only found your podcast in the last few months, but I've already devoured the back catalogue. It's been a joy to listen to. With the in-depth snooker knowledge, I simply can't get elsewhere. I was at the last... Thank you for that, by the way, Dave. He said, I was at the last day at the recent WST Classic. Just a couple of observations. First, it was clear the tournament was low-key, but I enjoyed this. The bar staff were friendly and the food was good. A highlight was when Jason Ferguson came into the spectator lounge and was happy to chat with fans. This really was so refreshing to see. Watching Mark Selby win at such close range was equally impressive. I was so close I was able to study his cue action and I've taken a few hints into my game. Uh, thanks so much for the podcast. I'm sure you get lots of correspondence, but I just wanted to say hi. Well, thank you for that. And uh, I think you, you did send an addendum. Oh yes, I'm meeting. He says I'm meeting snooker players. I attended the shootout in Watford a few years back. Stood outside talking. To, I stood outside talking to my friend about getting a pizza. Fergal O'Brien walked past, recommending pizza go go. I said thanks. Lovely stuff. And there's Fergal getting involved again <laughs> in a story. Um, <clears throat> and uh, now Gary Park was also at the WST Classic. So he said, on Wednesday, I attended the morning session of the WST Classic at the morning side in Leicester to see Mark Selby beat John Higgins 4-2. An excellent match with two of the very best match players. The venue put on a good show at short notice. My only regret was being unable to stay for the afternoon and evening sessions because of prior commitments. Still, £15 for a couple of hours of these two greats near their best represented excellent value. During frame five, Mark played a miss and, of course, John was given the opportunity to have the balls replaced and ask his opponent to play again. On this occasion, John declined, but asked for the cue ball to be cleaned before he played the next shot. I was wondering at what point John could no longer have asked Mark to play. In other words, if John had asked for the cue ball to be cleaned and then invited Mark to return and attempt his shot again, would the referee have refused? Did John take possession of the table as soon as he asked for the cue ball to be cleaned, or only once? Uh, he actually struck the white. I'd welcome your thoughts. Well, I would assume, Gary, and I'm not a referee, and maybe I should have asked one of the refs before answering this, but I would assume, once, like you say, once he's asked the cue ball to be cleaned, it's kind of his shot then. Because what business does he <laughs> does he have asking for it to be cleaned for Mark? So I, I suppose, yeah, once he's asked that, it's assumed that he's not taking the miss and, you know, he's come to the table and he's going to play the shot. Now, there may be a wrinkle on that. If any referees are listening, they, they might be able to clear that up, but I suspect that's probably probably the the, the, the answer. Uh, Gordon writes... Now, he, Gordon has written before about um, this business with the, the uh, Twitter and uh, the, the, the way that it's changing under our dear friend Elon Musk. Um, and uh, he basically got to pay to be verified and he's saying, you know, it could change the way that people engage on Twitter, which uh, obviously would be a tragedy <laughs> uh, because, uh, yes, Twitter's gone way downhill in my opinion. But anyway, that's a, that's a separate issue. But anyway, he says, did you ask the WST person about this uh, business? I forgot to, actually, to be perfectly honest, Gordon. No, if I, when, next time I see him, I will, uh, I will uh, speak to him about it. But... Uh, I did forget. I hold my hands up to that. Um, I, yes, I, I can't really, I can't really be on more, any more than that. I just forgot to ask him. 
but uh, I'll see him soon. I'll ask him now. Then <clears throat> he says, moving on to the snooker tournaments themselves. I really enjoyed watching the WST Classic. Admittedly, it could have been improved by having some sort of crowd the whole week, but some good matches, particularly Jimmy White beating Judd Trump and a whole host of other shocks along the way. Pang reaching the final was unexpected, but he's a really good player, and I hope he reaches finals more regularly. It's too good not to. I suspect the WST Classic will not be appearing in future calendars, but perhaps the name The Classic could be revived for a brand new tournament in future. If it is, it needs to be a tournament hosted outside the UK, so as to avoid the semblance of the WST becoming too close, close to running events uh, to running events here, which is great for fans in this country, but not good for developing new markets elsewhere. Well, just on that, Gordon, um, as I say, there's going to be this press conference where next season's calendar will be announced, so I don't know what the tournaments are. Like everyone else, I'm hoping there are going to be more than this year, and I'm hoping they are going to be, as you say, you know, more sort of spread a little bit more sort of uh, geographically and, and outside the UK. He says, going back a few weeks, I also really enjoyed the Six Race Championship in Thailand. I couldn't watch all the sessions because I needed to record them from the TV channels. And while it was great for Ding, I have to say the production quality from the world feed produced by the local broadcaster was poor. Audio quality was the main killer here. The microphones sounded like they were either underwater, covered up with bags, or the sounds are artificial and fake. He did at one point, I had to watch a match via the Eurosport app and the world feed audio was so low it was impossible to hear it due to the bad audio balancing. The crowd applause sounded like a low quality MP3 from a video game World Championship and World Championship 2007. And apart from the final and matches involving Ronnie, there wasn't much of a crowd there at all. Of course, Eurosport could not do anything about this because they weren't producing the world feed, as demonstrated by a kickboxing ad showing up randomly. But I do hope that if the tournament remains on the calendar, the audio quality improved markedly to more acceptable levels. <laughs> yes, I mean, the, the very first matches of the day actually didn't even have score graphics on, which was, you know, very kind of old school. But uh, anyway, you know, hopefully people will take that point on board. He said one final note. Well, he's asking me what my thoughts are on the on the saga involving Ronnie's interview and Steve Dawson's reply. This came out, came came in, I guess, just after last week's episode. Well, all of this was dealt with, so I, I, you go back and listen to that so you can hear... Uh, my thoughts on that, it was all uh, all laid out pretty clearly, I think. Uh, James Beard. <coughs> Dear Sir David, I know that's not your official title, but we need to start the campaign somewhere. Yes, good luck with that, James. He says, after listening to your recent podcast, I wonder if I could share a thought or two with you and your listeners. It's often said there's no reason why men and women should not be equally good at snooker. The principal reason cited is that snooker is not a power game. I agree with this, but there's one aspect of the game which I would be interested in your thoughts on. I don't think it's too controversial to say that, on average, there's a height difference between men and women. Surely this means women are more likely to have to use the rest to play certain shots. And presumably using the rest increases the likelihood of missing. Do you think a four-inch average height difference between men and women could put women at a significant disadvantage when playing snooker? Of course, if there's some merit in the above, then shorter players, male or female, wouldn't win many tournaments. I don't know the exact height of Mark Allen, but on my television screen... He looks to be one of the shorter players. His recent successes doesn't seem to support the idea that height matters in snooker. Also, I'm six foot two and have yet to win a ranking event. Well, <clears throat> I mean, I don't know if there's anything in that. I think the, the, the issue in terms of female players is there aren't enough of them. And if there aren't enough of them, then clearly they're going to be disadvantaged. This is a historical thing. It goes back to participation. And, you know, the, well, the women's tour has expanded and they're doing their best to increase opportunities and, and increase profile. And we've talked about, you know, the possibility of, of seeing women play each other on television as a, as a way of not just sort of fitting in with what's perceived to be the male game, even though it's the professional game, 
and have their own tour. But that involves money and it involves investment, and you know that's not forthcoming at the moment. Um, but anyway, thank you for your uh, thank you for your views on that. Brian Murray writes. Uh, I just want to thank you for the podcast. You obviously spend a lot of time and trouble putting them together. Well, <laughs> time, yes. Trouble, no, I would say. I stumbled across them a couple of months ago and started listening to them in no particular order. But listen to a few each day. I'm now up to date. and have, That's a lot of effort, by the way, Brian. Thank you. So I have to wait for them to come out weekly. Well, this is a midweek sports special. So, uh, it's, uh, yeah, anyway. I find the podcast really entertaining and informative. I started playing snooker as a kid in the 80s, watching the likes of Davis, Higgins, Reardon, Thorburn and the rest of the stars of that era. I used to like watching Tony Knowles, even though he never really won many titles. I don't know if he's still knocking around the snooker scene at all. I also like the doubles and the internationals. I don't really have much to add, except to say thanks again for the great listening. Well, thank you, Brian. Tony Knowles, he still plays the seniors. And, you know, he seems to... He was in Q school not so long ago. I don't know whether he's going to play that again. But um, he still, you know, he still loves playing and... uh, yeah, great star of, uh, of the past. You know, getting away from that, had great charisma. And uh, yes, anyway, thank you for uh, thank you for that email, Rob O'Connor. I think Rob O'Connor would, uh, in tabloid parlance, would be described as a boffin, <laughs> which is, is a word you only ever hear in tabloid newspapers. He says you may recall a couple of emails from me in the distant past about pedantry of the use of mathematical and physics terminology from the commentators. Another thing that becomes tiresome and got me thinking is the constant debate about pocket size and forgiveness. I've often considered building a contraption, or more likely getting a student of mine to do it, that would allow for proper quantification of how accepting a pocket on a given table was. It wouldn't be too difficult to build a little ramp which you could place parallel to the cushion and progressively let the ball go from further up the ramp to increase the speed at which it reaches, reaches the pocket, noting the value where the pocket will no longer accept it. They use something like this in golf to measure the speed of the greens, I believe. You can expand the process by moving uh, the apparatus one millimetre out from the cushion and repeating the experiment, building up a picture of how the curve of the pocket affects whether a ball drops as a function of speed. <laughs> like I say, Rob is a bit of a boffin. Anyway, I've added that in, by the way. He says that lastly, you could have the rig so that it rotates, keeping the centre of the pocket as the centre of the circle of rotation to measure how much harder you can get away with hitting the ball the straighter the shot is. If you did this at every tournament, you could really get a measure for whether some pockets were playing easier than others. I was thinking recently as well about how you could set it up at an angle to the cushion to get an idea of the sliding off the cloth that people say makes pots easier on new cloths. But then I fell asleep. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, effort, the, the thought was there, wasn't it? He says, take that, take from that what you will. I actually have a theory about this sliding that I'll save for another day. Anyway, I don't have a star table in my lab, so I'll keep that project on the back burner for now. On a completely unrelated note, it seems that people love writing in with ideas for new and novel torment formats. Given that everything seems to be done by chat GPT these days, I asked it for a suggestion. There's certainly some novelty to what it came up with. So, uh, he sent this in. For those of you who don't know, this chat GPT, it's, a, it's an AI uh, sort of chatbot, uh, artificial intelligence chatbot, and uh, so he's fed this into the uh, to the machine. If indeed, it is a machine about uh, a new torment, and this is what it suggested. So I'm going to read out what our dear friend on the chatbot has suggested. Okay, how about a snooker torment where each round is played in a different location around the world, with a unique set of challenges and obstacles for the players to overcome? The torment could consist of several rounds, with each taking place in a different country or city. For example, the first round could be played in a traditional snooker hall in England, while the second round could take place in an historic castle in Scotland. In each location, the players will be faced with a set of challenges that they must overcome 
in order to win the match. These challenges could include playing in extreme weather conditions, playing on a table with uneven surfaces, or even playing with unusual equipment, such as oversized cues or unusual coloured balls. The final round could take place in a specially designed arena that combines elements of all the previous locations, creating a truly unique and challenging environment for the players. This tournament would not only test the players' snooker skills, but also their adaptability and ability to perform under pressure in unfamiliar surroundings. It would be a thrilling and exciting event for both players and fans alike, with each location offering its unique atmosphere and challenges. Well, thank you for that, uh, Mr. AI. And um, let's, I, I, what I would say is, you know, don't run before you can walk. Let's just try and get another 200 people in, in the bonus arena hole first, and then we'll worry about Scottish castles and all the rest of it maybe at a later date. Keith McLaughlin, I mean, you know, I should know this because I'm the host of the podcast. I don't think I've read this out, Keith. If I have done, then apologies, not just to you, but anyone else. But I don't think I've read this one out, so I'm going to do it now. He says, I love the podcast. A great listen, very informative. I love the last line of the last podcast. Enjoy yourself, it's later than you think. Great wise words. This was a couple of weeks ago now. He says, I was recently at the Players' Challenge in Wolverhampton. I wasn't really impressed with the venue. The seats were very tight. Very little information outside the arena. Nobody even announcing how long the interval would be or calling people back into the arena. It all seemed very unorganised. The Leisure Centre staff, all very nice, it must be said. Just no communication from World Snooker Tour staff mainly. Maybe I'm hard to impress. The only other two snooker venues I've been to before was the legendary Goffs in County Kildare, which personally I don't think can be beaten, and the amazing Crucible in Sheffield. I attended on the Monday night, but also went again Tuesday night to see the Milkman, Robert Milkins. Personally, I think he's the best player I've seen live. I've seen all the big stars from the 1990s in Goffs. The way he walks around the table is great to see. He's going with Tom Ford, went to a decider. And he's also a deciding frame between Ali Carter and Judd Trump with a cracking battle on the colours late into the night. My plan is to get to more tournaments again. As the saying goes, you can't beat being there. Keep up the great work. Uh, so I'm not sure what venue this was. Robert Milkins, Tom Ford. I don't think they played at the, the cruci- each other at the Crucible, did they? Uh, anyway, that's it. That's, uh, oh no, sorry. Yeah, you're talking about Wolverhampton. <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm mixing it up. Yeah, you're talking about Wolverhampton. Yeah, Ali Carter Judge Trump. That was an unbelievable match, actually. Uh, anyway, thanks for your feedback. I think that Wolverhampton venue. I mean, I actually think, and I'm not looking at it from a spectator perspective. I understand that, but in the end, actually, I thought it was quite a good venue. They had good crowds. It was quite lively. But um, you know, you're talking obviously specifically from your own experience of going there, which is what we want to hear uh, from people because it's important to to listen. To the fans of this sport, um, Christine, I think, has written in about uh, the running of the table. I enjoyed reading Clive Everton's book Black Files and Cuball Wizards recently, but left wondering about a particular sentence. When he says a table should run ideally at five and a half lengths, I'm picturing someone hitting a cue ball as hard as they can and it travelling five and a half table lengths before it comes to rest. Is that right? Seems very far. Sure, it depends how hard the ball is hit. I may be taking it too literally, but how would you know the Masters table was running at seven to eight lengths? Are there rules around this measure that ranking event tables need to comply to in some way as pockets need to be templated? What can be done? What can I do to change how the table runs? Is it about the heaters? I did try to Google, but my patience ran out before I found the answer. Well, <laughs> obviously, I mean, conditions have changed a lot. Tables are quicker. The, uh, the, the cloths tend to be thinner. Um, they're not quite as thin as the uh, the napless cloths they use for current billiards, which uh, which are really fast. But they, you know the players expect fast conditions. One of the challenges as a snooker player now is to adapt to the conditions. At the Tour Championship, they they can practice beforehand, so they do get a little feel of it uh, beforehand. 
Um, this business of five and a half lengths, that sounds like uh, a, a sort of figure that's a little bit random, really. But um, anyway, as you say, you uh, you run out of patience. And uh, I'm sure everyone else is right now because this, this episode, you can't, no one asked for this episode. It just, it's just come along. Nobody's asked for it. But here we are. Uh, have we got any more? Any more for any more? Uh, Christian, I don't, again, I, can't, I mean, I don't remember whether I've read these out or not, but Christian, I wanted, he says, I wanted to ask you, do you know if the qualifiers for the World Challenge it will be on Eurosport? If so, how many days, how many sessions? They won't be on linear television, but they'll all be on Discovery Plus. There'll be four tables, there's eight tables in total, four tables streamed. The table one will have commentary on Discovery Plus. I'll be doing some of it myself. Um, so that's essentially that. You can watch it on Discovery Plus. It'll be a choice of four tables. Table one has commentary, and then Wilson and Couture. The last two days will do their usual judgment day. I say usual. Actually, there's more more going on this year. I think. Um, so again, I'm fortunate enough to be part of that. So uh, that'll be on their YouTube and Facebook channels, and that'll be free around the world. So you can jump in between tables and trying to get a flavour of what's happening and interviewing all the the people who qualify. So um, do look out for that. Now, do, do, do. have we got any more? People are saying, well, you should know that. Then what are you asking us for? Um, I think we'll leave it there because I do have to go back to the venue, actually, thinking about it for the final session of uh, Sean Murphy, Robert Milkins. So, again, apologies if I haven't got to your email. It's not uh, anything personal. It's mainly I just can't remember what I've read out and what I haven't. And this is why we're number 13 in Zimbabwe. You know, if, we, if we've got our act together, we might get in the top 10. But uh, I'll take number 13. It's not bad. Has ever got anything to ask or any thoughts on what's happening in the snooker world? Certainly with the World Championship coming up, we welcome more comments. Then uh, you can e- email us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. There is actually one more here that I, sh- I must read out from Brian McGovern. He says, More than likely, I'll be listening to this podcast on my way home. Okay. I have a quick question. On the score graphics with Eurosport and the BBC, beside the player's name, it shows the flag of the country that, the, of, that the, they represent. But on the ITV graphics, it doesn't. Any idea why this is? In any case, I'll be looking forward to the Feast of Snooker coming up, and no doubt the Tour Championship will be underway when you're reading this. Keep up the good work. Greetings from Navan, County Meath, Ireland. Well, it's just individual choice of the broadcasters, I suppose. Um, yeah, that's it, really. I mean... Some, some people like to put the flag up, some don't. Um, that's it. All, 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 bro- all broadcasters like to do it their own way, I think. In all sports, you know, because you want to establish a style. And I think, I do think snooker fans in the UK, and I understand this again is UK centric, but I think they are well served by the different approaches, you know, the different strengths of the broadcasters. Um, I think they all have their strengths. We've learned today, and it's no great surprise because I predicted this on the, uh, whether it was the Christmas special or the, or the New Year predictions, I can't remember now, but um, John Virgo and Dennis Taylor looks like they're going to continue at the BBC, and so they should really, you know, they've been there for a long time, they've got a lot of experience and insight to add, you know, the great careers they've had, so apparently they, they, there was there was talk, it was never official actually, that they were going to be sort of got rid of, never actually an official thing, but anyway, they're not going to be, so uh, that's I think that's good news. But in the meantime, that's it. So hopefully uh, the Tour Championship will uh, will end on a high, despite the problems we've had so far. One thing to look out for, and this is a positive move, I think, and it does prove actually, I think, that things are changing a little bit. I have been asked, alongside Phil Yates, to contribute 
some articles to the World Snooker Tour website. I have at times criticised the website, not so much the content, but the, certainly the design of it is quite hard to navigate. So I've not always been complimentary about it, but they've seen past that. They've asked me and Phil to contribute previews for, for, for the World Championship in terms of the top 16. So we're going to be writing articles about the top 16. There'll be a couple put up each day, what, what we think about each player's chances at the Crucible, looking at their careers, looking at the, the seasonal performances and just maybe a little prediction about how we think they're going to do. And I'm sure there'll be opportunities for other journalists as well to contribute. I think that's quite a positive thing because it's taking away the sort of barrier between the sports body and the media. As I said last week, um, you know, we're all in it together and we all have a, a responsibility to promote the sport and it's nice to be asked. And having sort of made criticisms, I'm, I'm in no position to turn around and say, no, I'm not going to do it. Of course I've got to do it because, you know, you've got to put your money where your mouth is really and say, okay, you know, you've asked me, I'm going to do it. So look out for those. They'll be up from Monday. And uh, actually there's a couple of articles going up this week as well, just sort of previewing the qualifiers. The qualifiers start on Monday, of course. Um, live on Discovery Plus for 10 days. Last two days, Judgment Day, live on the Wilson Tour Tour Facebook and YouTube. And then... It's not going to be too long now, a couple of weeks, until we're at the Crucible itself. All very exciting, great time of the year to be a snooker fan. So keep the faith, everybody, whatever that means, I don't know. And (laughs) from this midweek sports special, it's goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.